1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
0: It's the hard knock life for us.
2: One of the most popular musicals of all time is back. See Annie, Broadway's favorite orphan, live on stage in an all-new production, hailed by the Chicago Tribune as one of the best family musicals ever written. Annie is back to spread hope for all the hard knocks life throws your way. So clear away those sorrows and get your tickets to Annie today. Annie comes to the San Jose Center for the Performing Arts from January 10th through the 15th. Get tickets now at BroadwaySanJose.com.
3: Golf, unfortunately, is a game of losers, and I hate losing. We just want to win every week.
2: Highland presents pro golfer Xander Shoffley on his X Factor. Teamwork.
3: I focus a lot on teamwork because it makes my job easier. When... You surround yourself with the right people and the right support, it actually makes performing at a higher level easier. To find
2: your X Factor, go to Highland.com, H Y L A N D.com
3: slash X Factor. Hey everyone, I'm Boomer Assize, and I am so delighted to have you join us here on our all new Game Time Podcast. With an incredible 82 World Cup victories to her credit, today's guest is the most successful female racer in history. She's the only American woman to ever capture the downhill gold at the Olympic Winter Games and the only American woman to have garnered four World Cup overall titles. It is certainly my pleasure to welcome in the great Lindsey Bonn.
4: Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me.
3: All right, Lindsay, a lot of your fans may not know that you are a huge fan of tennis icon Roger Federer to the point where you would get up in the middle of the night to watch his matches. In fact, you once played against him in a promotional event on the Swiss Glacier. Why, why are you so enamored of Roger?
4: Um, I mean, you know, he's just such a champion. I've, I've, I mean, I always have loved tennis, um, but, you know, there's something about him that, I can really relate to. You know, he's always the person that no matter if he wins or loses, he signs every autograph. He's always kind. He's always humble. And there are very few athletes that do that. And I have immense respect for that because it is very difficult to be able to put a smile on your face when, you know, you've just lost at the US Open, you know, final and, you know, you know what that means and you're still able to, you know, be friendly to everyone and sign autographs, that's, that's really hard. So I respect him immensely. And, you know, now that he's retired, I'm just really looking forward to skiing with him because he's been putting it off for a while and it's about time.
3: Mm-hmm. All right. You no, know, like Roger Federer, you couldn't overcome age and injury to his knees, uh, did you give him any advice about retirement and if so what did, would you have suggested based on your relatively recent experience are you enjoying your retirement by the way and uh, you said unlike other career changes you just can't go back to skiing like he may be able to go back to tennis
4: yeah i mean it's it's definitely a, a bit different i haven't given him, him any advice i think we, we talked more when you know he was dealing with his knee um, that's something that i could relate to <laughs> obviously no. But, you know, yeah. retirement, to your point, he can go back. He can, you know, maybe play exhibition games. You know, he can play in the Masters Tour, which he probably would never do. But there's still an option of, you know, playing somewhat competitively. And ski racing, for me, that that's absolutely not an option, um, at least not with the current body that I have. Um, no. So I, I envy him in some ways. But um, retirement for me has gone relatively well. I think it took me about a year and a half to settle in. Um, I mean, you know, you know, when you retire from sports, it just it takes a while. You've grown up your whole life focusing on one thing and then you wake up one day and that's gone. And I think that's a hard, a pretty hard transition, no matter how much you prepare for it or think you're prepared for it.
3: You know, like tennis, skiing is an individual sport. Now, you said that you much prefer that over team sports like, say, football. And why isn't that? Doesn't don't you consider yourself like a true teammate or you don't?
4: I do consider myself a teammate, but. I don't want to rely on someone for victory or, or, you know, to, or to blame someone for failure. You know, I want to be solely responsible for my success. And as much as I feel like I'm a teammate to, you know, the other U S ski team girls and I support them and we support each other and we help each other succeed. I still, you know, just want it to be, on my shoulders. And I never blame anyone else for my own mistakes, you know, whether my, my skis or my coaches, you know, I always, it's always 100% on me. And I, I honestly like that responsibility. I prefer that responsibility. And I don't know, I I only played one other team sport, and that was soccer. And I was utterly horrible. So um, I don't know how I would do with any other sport. But I, I, I prefer the single single person sport, to be honest.
3: All right, as part of your, of your transition from competitive ski racing to the business world, which is a team sport, by the way, remind you, <laughs> you interned with a venture capitalist I read. You also became an advisor for two funds. You attended a Harvard, Harvard Business School program, the business of entertainment, media and sports. So what have you been learning from these experiences as you now start to expand your brand?
4: I mean, I definitely learned a lot over the course of my career from, you know, contract negotiation
3: to, you know,
4: relationship building. And I think a lot of business is about who you know um, and, you know, your, your ability to call upon people when you need them. Um, and I feel like there's just there's an endless amount of knowledge that I don't have, and I try to surround myself with people that can help me in different areas, whether it be in venture capital or, um, you know, I'm creating my ski line with Head, you know, surrounding myself with the best designers. And, um, you know, I always just try to, you know, my dad always has epistemology, the study of things you don't know, and I don't know a lot. So I'm, I'm going to be continuously learning my whole life. Um, but again, I, I think I'm lucky because my career has enabled me to be in a position where I, I feel like I have a, a leg up um, on business.
3: We're talking with the great Lindsey Vaughn here on the Game Time Podcast. And Lindsey, all of your exciting new endeavors are building on your legacy of sustained athletic excellence. Let me ask you, how does it feel to be included with the likes of Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, and Muhammad Ali in the elite herd of goats?
4: Ah, uh, that's a lot. I don't know if I really belong with all of those names, but, um, I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, Muhammad to me is, is the greatest athlete of all time. So I don't, I don't think I'm in that realm, but again, I appreciate just the, even the mention.
3: <laughs> well, I could say that you belong in there. You don't have to say it. And speaking of sports aristocracy, congratulations on your induction into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame class of 2022. So what does that honor mean to you?
4: Thanks. I mean, that was um, something I you know, I, I didn't really expect so soon after my retirement, but the class was incredible. I mean, some of the greatest Paralympians of all time, um, Michael Phelps, obviously, um, Natalie Coughlin. I mean, the, the names on that list were incredible. And to have that uh, ceremony where we were all together, we felt like such a family. And uh, I wish, you know, my mother had been able to be there, but it was Truly an incredible day, and uh, it's an honor to be in the Hall of Fame.
3: You know, as Lindsey Vaughn, you can't really go anywhere without somebody seeing you and noticing you. And I noticed something this uh, this past fall. Now, you're used to holding precious trophies and medals and everything, but you are a guest at a Rams game in Los Angeles. And I, I sensed a little nervousness from you when Magic Johnson handed you the Lombardi trophy. What was that all about?
4: Yeah, I've never held it. I mean, I've seen, you know, a lot of the Lombardi trophies at at the Patriots um, at, at with John, with uh, Robert Kraft and I've seen them, but I've never actually held them. And when Magic handed me the trophy, I was like, "Whoa, this is." <laughs> I mean, I've, <laughs> I've held a lot, but this isn't mine, and I don't know if I should be holding it, and I certainly don't want to drop it. But um, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful trophy, and uh, and uh, Magic knew what he was doing. He said he'd held it before, so I just kind of followed his lead. <laughs>
3: yeah he's another one who likes to hold a lot of trophies for sure now in your new memoir called rise it was released a little bit earlier this year now i read that you actually wrote it twice now what didn't you like about the first draft and was it really a cathartic experience for you
4: yeah it was very cathartic i mean it i I wrote it it, i mean it literally took a year and a half to write the first one uh with about six edits and i just didn't like it i didn't feel um that it had my tone and I, i i just I didn't like it. So I literally started from scratch, um, completely rewrote it. And in the end, I was really happy with the outcome. You know, I, I, I wanted it to be something. I mean, because obviously, once you write a book, it's it's going to be there forever. So I wanted it to be perfect. And I think the end result was, was worth the
3: wait. I don't know if this really qualifies as a fun fact or not, Lindsay, but is it true that you actually race on men's ski? Now, I'm a ski skier. I used to be a skier, and I'm not sure. I didn't know that there was a difference between men's skis and, and women's skis. Is, is there?
4: Yeah, there's actually a big difference. Um, I mean, from the length to the stiffness and the construction, um, men's skis are created completely differently to women's. And when I was racing, I just would see, you know, all of the men having no problem on ice and, you know, it's everything seemed easy. So I said, well, why can't, why can't I ski in those skis? And everyone kind of laughed at me. And then I, I ended up skiing on them and I, I won and I, I was definitely the last one laughing. So it worked out in my favor. And now kind of, it's a thing where at least people try the men's skis. I'd I say the majority of women don't use them, but, um, But I was definitely the first, so it
3: was kind of cool. Yeah, and as they say, the rest is history. All right, we're just getting warmed up with the great Lindsey Vonn. Next, we're going to look back at her early life growing up as a skiing prodigy when Game Time continues right after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what?
2: With unlimited access to 10,000-plus workouts from world-class studios and trainers, Lululemon Studio is everything you need to be your best. Take a class in cardio, strength, yoga, dance, boxing, stretch, or any of our 60-plus class types. Or visit any of our U.S. participating partner studio locations, including Pure Bar, Rumble, and Y7 Studio, and save 20% on any in-person class. The mirror is the center of your Lululemon Studio membership. See your reflection alongside your trainer in a full HD display and track your metrics, all in an elegant design that fits any space in your home. For a limited time, you can bring Lululemon Studio into your home for just $745. Visit lululemonstudio.com and use code CADENCE to take advantage of our best deal of the year. Full price last offer, 10422 Lulu Lululemon Studio content features and member benefits subject to change.
3: Hey, this is Kenny Main, host of something called Hey Main. That's a podcast. Uh, we're working busily on season two, but let's not forget about season one. Remember Jamel Hill? Is the cookout ever going to happen, or is it just metaphorical?
2: It is largely metaphorical. Just know we would feel very comfortable inviting you. Potato salad, by the way, I feel like I should tell your listeners, does not have raisins
3: in it. If you missed that episode of Hey Maine, check it out on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Game Time, everyone, as he did with every other member of his family. Don Kildo taught his two-year-old granddaughter, Lindsay how to ski at the Oak Ridge Ski Club, which he co-founded 60 years ago in Janesville, Wisconsin. Now, I know your mom, Linda, actually never really remembered giving birth to you, Lindsay. She suffered a stroke four hours before you were born. Now, she was never the same physically, but somehow she compensated with the strength in so many ways, and she was able to get you from state to state to training and, competitions and everything else sending you positive affirmations every time you guys went how would you summarize her impact on your life
4: i mean it's really immeasurable the impact my mother's had on my life you know i think growing up more so it was subconsciously you know she was really this example of positivity and perseverance you know what you said her having a stroke before giving birth to me or during my birth um, was something that, you know, physically set her back a lot. She was never able to, to run or do all of the things that she really, you know, was excelled at um, before the stroke. Um, and so I just, I always had the perspective, you know, that my mother, no matter how much she worked or tried, she would never be able to achieve the things that she wanted because of her stroke. And, you know, when I got injured, I always, thought, well, I have this opportunity, uh, and I need to use that, whereas my mother didn't. So I just always had that perspective in the back of my mind. And I think as I got older, and, um, you know, I, I just saw more of the impact that she had on my life beyond just her positivity and perseverance. Um, and, you know, we lost her a, a few months ago now. And um, it's been hard because, you know, she was always that, you know stable um person that always was always had a positive word whenever you were feeling down she was just always there and and so it's it's been a, a very difficult time for myself and my family
3: you know you just brought it up that she just passed away and uh it was about a year after she was diagnosed with ALS Lou Gehrig's disease of course and at first you guys didn't really want to talk about it now you've become an outspoken advocate for ALS awareness and I certainly appreciate that and so what message are you trying to get out there
4: It's just a disease that honestly, I mean, I didn't even know much about. I think almost the majority of the world did the ice bucket challenge. I felt like that was such a, you know, viral movement. But I would say most people didn't know what ALS even was. Um, And so when my mom was diagnosed, you know, I didn't know that it was terminal. um, And I certainly didn't know how difficult it would be when things started to decline and how much it would take away her independence and, um, you know, how um, painful it was. So really I would just want to tell people um, about ALS and try to raise money for it. And I obviously have my own foundation that, you know, we're going to dedicate a scholarship to my mother and um, many things going forward. But I think my mom really wanted to have her, battle with ALS means something and impact people in a positive way. And so I'm just trying to carry that message on for her.
3: I certainly can appreciate that. You know, your life story is uh, all about persistence, resilience and determination. And now in your book, Rise, you actually tell the story of training at Mount Hood in Oregon. And I love this story because it really tells you about who you are and how dedicated you are to something that you love. At the age of 10, when a heavy rainstorm struck, everyone headed to the lodge and the chairlifts shut down. But what did Lindsey Vaughn decide to do?
4: I got out there. I was like, this is a perfect opportunity to train. No one's out here. So I just started hiking up the hill. And I took run after run, just hiking up all by myself. And uh, my dad, actually, that was the first time he thought, you know, maybe I had, you know, the determination and work ethic to actually do something with a skiing career. Um, but to me, that just seemed like a great opportunity. I really didn't think twice about it. And, I, I mean, it was it was lightning and it was raining very hard. It was not ideal. <laughs> but um, I guess that's just how much I loved racing and, and, and also training. You know, training is the most important part of any sport and you have to really love it and i certainly did even at a young age
3: you know i think it could be argued that the entire trajectory of your career changed when you went for a bike ride in lake tahoe (laughs) with your rival and u.s teammate julia mancuso and her dad so what kind of reality check was that for you
4: well you know i would i had always been you know fairly successful um you know, growing up and, you know, in my early teens and I got on the U.S. ski team when I was 14, uh, the same as Julia. And we were kind of always, you know, junior rivals. And I went to her house, you know, I thought it would be fun and, you know, we could maybe train together. And um, we went on this bike ride with her and her father had road bikes and I had a mountain bike and they just they left me. They they left me to fend for <laughs> myself and I. I just thought, wow, either, you know, they're really mean for putting me on this mountain bike or I'm in really bad shape. And I need to figure it out. So I definitely had that was a reality check moment for me. And um, I realized that, you know, maybe I wasn't pushing myself as hard physically in the summer as, as some of my other competitors. So I, I definitely turned things around after that.
3: The great Lindsay Vaughn is our guest on the Game Time podcast. And Lindsay, you know, growing up, we all have our idols whom we hope to emulate. Now, mine were Mets pitcher Tom Seaver and Rangers winger Rod Gilbert. Yours, I know, was Olympic gold medalist Peekaboo Street. So what do you remember about meeting her for the first time when you were 10 years old at a book signing appearance in Minnesota?
4: It was a small ski shop, Pierce Skate and Ski in, in Minnesota, and it was uh, an autograph signing. I, was, I waited in line for several hours to meet her and you know, growing up, ski racing really wasn't on TV. And the really the main person that we looked to was peekaboo. Um, She had just come off of a silver medal at Lillehammer. And um, man, meeting her just changed my perspective. You know, I, I never really thought of ski racing as, you know, a job or something that, you know, I could potentially do for my career. And when I met her, that all changed. And I just wanted to be an Olympian. I I went home and I said, dad, this is what I want to do. And he said, okay, well, are you ready? And I was like, yeah. So he made, we, we literally sat down and made a 10-year plan and how we were going to make the Olympics in Salt Lake City. And, and, uh, we did it.
3: Yeah. What, what a 10-year plan that was. you talk talking about the Salt Lake City uh, Olympics as so it was 2002. And of course, in our country and she was 30, you were 17 And I'm thinking that this 30-year-old is looking at this 17-year-old going, man, she's got to be really nervous. Did she help you calm down as you got ready to compete in your first ever Olympics?
4: Um, I think it was more the preparation to those Olympics where, you know, we spent more time together and I, I really was her shadow. You know, I watched everything she did and how she prepared and how she focused and visualized and I asked her a lot of questions. I think I probably annoyed her more than anything Mm -hmm. Um, but when we were at the Olympics in Salt Lake, you know, uh, she had so much pressure on her. It was her final Olympics. Um, you know, she had been injured dramatically several times after her win in the 98 Olympics. So she really needed to focus. And I, I kind of just stood back and and watched and didn't really, you know, tried not to get into her face too much, but it was a privilege to be able to watch her and her final Olympics and kind of to be there during that season, you know, watching your idol, Um, do what they do was pretty incredible.
3: Yeah, well, you know, in the 2010 Vancouver Games, you uh, claimed both gold in the downhill and the bronze in the Super G, despite a bruised right shin, and you couldn't wear your boot, and I'm just thinking that it must have felt great to not only take off that boot, but to wear that gold medal finally around your neck and hear the national anthem. What was that moment like for you?
4: It was incredible. I mean, my family had given up so much for me to be in that position, and I remember crossing the finish line and screaming because I saw that I was in the lead. And it was such a big relief. You know, it was obviously joyous, but it was also, you know, this huge weight was lifted from my shoulders, you know, that my family had sacrificed so much to get there. And I finally achieved what we had all worked so hard to achieve. And I wish, I really wish that moment would have lasted so much longer because, It was literally such a short period of time that I've worked my whole entire life for, and it was gone in a flash, but it was the best race of my career. I think performance-wise, memory-wise, emotions-wise, it was just um, an experience of a lifetime.
3: You you also had a very special memory in your final Olympic appearance in South Korea, and that's when you did win the bronze in the downhill, and you were able to Honor your beloved grandfather with that medal, who served in the Korean War, and what was that emotion like?
4: That was a hard one, you know. I think that was probably one of the few times in my entire career where I let my emotions get the best of me. Um, You know, he, my grandfather, was really hanging on um, as long as he could to be able to make it to those Olympics. You know, having served in South Korea, as you said it was really meaningful to him for me to be able to compete there. And he passed away only a few months before the games. And so, you know, it was just hard. It was hard to be able to put those emotions aside and, you know, do what I do best, which is have nerves of steel. Um, and I I tried to ski for him and I think as much as, as meaningful as that was, that was probably, you know, competitively a mistake, but I was still able to come away with the bronze and, um, and I know he would have been proud of me, regardless of what color the medal was.
3: Yeah, without question. I always think of you as fearless, by the way, and uh, just daredevil-like. No, you had, you do have a special relationship with your idol-turned mentor, and it continues to this very day with Peekaboo Street. And you are producing a documentary on Peekaboo. So this has got to be great, right?
4: Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I, I directed and produced uh, her documentary with the amazing Frank Marshall, it was one of the, the kind of the first projects we had with my production company, Operate Productions. And I mean, obviously what a privilege to be able to to work with Frank, but then to you know everything to come full circle by, you know, making the documentary on my idol. And Peekaboo was, was really amazing. You know, it was a really emotional story. And I knew I thought I knew everything there was to know about her. I mean, I read her book and I was her shadow you know, when I was competing with her, but um, that interview revealed a lot about her that I didn't know and that the world didn't know. And I think that it was a, a really meaningful documentary besides being, you know, a privilege for me to, to be able to be a part of.
3: A documentary done with love for sure. All right, we'll be back to talk about the darker side of glory right after this. Welcome back, everyone. Now, the flip side of success is that every victory comes with a price. The public rarely gets a glimpse into the physical and mental and emotional tolls that world-class athletes pay, and nobody more than uh, Lindsey Vaughn has paid the price. I mean, you are amazing. I... I think about the time that you skied your final race in the 2009 World Championships. You had endured, by that time, four reconstructive surgeries in your right knee. You have no lateral collateral ligament in your left. You skied half of the 2017 season with your hand actually duct taped to your pole because of nerve damage from a broken right arm. You're a crazy person. Uh, How do you keep coming back? And maybe the more important question is, why did you keep coming back?
4: (laughs) Great questions. Um, I question that all the time. Um, no, I, you know, I think number one, I loved my sport. You know, I, I truly loved competing. I loved going fast. I loved the adrenaline. And when I was injured, you know, all I wanted to do was get back to what I loved. And then I think you combine that with, you know, my mother's perspective and, and, you know, being very positive and optimistic. And, you know, I I never thought of an injury as something that I couldn't come back from. It was just a setback and, and an opportunity for me to get stronger. And I did. Maybe not physically all the time, but certainly mm-hmm. mentally.
3: Yeah, which is amazing because after a 2013 knee injury, you started suffering from insomnia, you reported. And, you know, I think we all suffer from some sort of insomnia. I know that my work schedule uh, keeps me up at night, keeps me wor- worrying, my brain can't stop. So what do you do to, uh, when you're able to cope with this insomnia?
4: Well, I'm really lucky because I was able to talk to my doctor and he prescribed QVivic. And I've been dealing with it again since 2013, since my first knee surgery. You know, it was something where, um, because of all the pain medicine and, and, you know, the pain that I was in, I, I just couldn't fall asleep. And it was a really a repetitive cycle, um, downward cycle of not sleeping. Um, and then actually in retirement, it got a lot worse to your point of, you know, just not being able to shut your brain off. and. Um, you know, without the physical exertion that I had from ski racing, it became a lot harder to, to be able to turn the switch off. So um, I'm really, really happy. I'm much more energetic now. I'm sleeping so much better, and um, mm. I'm very thankful for Cubivic.
3: You know, and in top of uh, nutrition and exercise, there's a third part of this whole thing for world-class athletes, and that is sleep. I mean, sleep has got to be one of the most important aspects of everyone's life.
4: Yeah, my dad always preached to me, you know, the most important way to recover is sleep. And when I was a kid, it was really easy, actually. I'm really good at napping. I can sleep on – I couldn't sleep before on on any plane or train or in in any car – um, but again, it just got harder and harder with age. And, and again, after my surgeries, and I think it's something that I think most of us just write off as, you know, normal, and it's really not normal. And there's a solution for it, you know, and I, I tried many, many different things, you know, as an athlete, you always want to perform your best, you always want to find a way to, to be the best you that you can be. And um, I wasn't able to find that until now. I wish I Would have had that when I was competing. That would have (laughs) helped me a lot.
3: (laughs) You know, in your new book, Rise, you also talk about depression. And I think that the stigma of depression has kind of gone away somewhat. It's become more and more obvious that athletes are also suffering from psychological effects of depression. Um, Has it finally been lifted, you think, totally where people are like you yourself are willing to open up about it?
4: I don't think the stigma is as gone. Um, I think that we've become um, more open to the conversation. I think because of people like Michael Phelps and Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles and and myself, you know, I think the conversation is, is really become more prevalent and accepted, but the stigma is still there. I mean, you know, I give interviews talking about my depression and it, it was in, you know, obviously my, my memoir rise and, you know, still the headlines on Twitter are, you know, Lindsay suffers from depression. And this is like, you know, very negative uh, uh, headline. And it's, it's not, you know, it's something that's actually really normal. Um, And, you know, I'd say probably with COVID, most of the world (laughs) was depressed. Um, So it's not something that, you know, is, is different from anyone else. It's, it's more common than you would think.
3: Well, social media can be a sewer pit, and Mm -hmm. I wouldn't worry about it because, you know what, you are a true champion in the eyes of many of us, especially sharing all your stories, whether it be ALS, depression, about your injuries, your sleep, uh, insomnia, whatever it may be that you can make somebody else's life better to me makes you a champion. Okay, Lindsay, let's turn to some lighter topics here on the Game Time Podcast. Now, I know how competitive you are by nature. I can just tell by interviewing you. We have a little game we like to call Does Lindsay Know Snow? Now, I have to tell you that it's a Black Diamond level quiz, and when Michaela Schifrin tried it on this program earlier, she crashed full yard sale. Are you up for the challenge?
4: I am always up for a challenge.
3: Okay, so what color is snow?
4: Mm. It's definitely not white. I'd say maybe blue.
3: It's actually colorless. White reflection of uh, the light is bouncing off the faucets of the translucent crystal is what it is. So there you have it. All right. I knew it
4: wasn't white. I knew it wasn't (laughs) white.
3: That's right. All right. Is it true that no two snowflakes are alike?
4: Correct.
3: No. Back in 1988, a scientist found two identical snow crystals. And you're not going to believe where he found these. In a Wisconsin storm.
4: Well, I should know that coming from the Midwest. (laughs) I should definitely know that. But my parents always said there are no two snowflakes alike. So I blame (laughs) my
3: parents. (laughs) Okay. So why do many animals, including bears, dig deep holes in heavy snow for winter hibernation?
4: Why do they dig deep holes?
3: Yeah, why? To
4: insulate themselves
3: from the cold? Yeah, that's correct. I'm giving you that one. It's for warmth. That's exactly right. All right, so on January 31st, 2016, 76,081 people gathered in Saskato- Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada to take part in which activity? Uh dog sled? Close, the world's largest snowball fight. Wow, wouldn't have
4: guessed that,
3: that one. one? You? Wouldn't have guessed that one. Okay, all right. A couple more for you. Every snowflake starts with a tiny speck of what? Water, dust, or pollen. Really? Because what? Yeah, because water vapor needs to attach to something. Wow, this you is know, crazy. I tell you I'm what, learning you got two so more much. I'm,
4: I'm depressed <laughs> that I'm uh, that I'm losing here, but I'm learning
3: something. <laughs> uh, you haven't gone full yard sale just okay, yet, so okay, hang on for a okay. second. Alright, so how long does it take for the average snowflake to hit the ground?
4: Wow, are we talking can you give me a hint? Like, are we talking minutes, seconds, hours? Like what, what
3: genre? Hey, uh, uh we're we're talking like a general time frame that you and I could be having a conversation here.
4: Okay. Five
3: minutes. Uh how about an hour?
4: Uh, okay.
3: Ah! Ah! All right, so listen, I hope I all right, one no no, you got one more, okay, you got one more. more. One more. Now, if you get this one, you're going to win. Finally, here's something I know that you do not have. Okay, you listen to that. What is cyanophobia?
4: Cyanophobia? Fear of yes. fear? Or fear, Be having fear? I don't know.
3: No. Fear of snow, dear, fear, of, fear snow? of snow, which you don't have. Well, I knew it yes. was
4: fear of something, obviously, <laughs> but I thought it was something that I don't have because I'm fearless. But, you know, clearly, so I, I'm actually, although I am not afraid of snow, I actually hate the cold. So that's not entirely true.
3: Okay. No. <laughs> well, it was great having you. Lizzie, uh, you know, I think you got one right. I don't think McKelly got any right. So I'm going to give you the victory over McKellie, right. at least in this test. Okay? All right. Thank you. Our thanks to Lindsay Vaughn for joining us today and to all of you for watching on Boomer Esiason. And I'll see you again real soon right here on Game Time.